Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your casual criminalist, or as everyone points out whenever I say that. Uh, no, Simon, we know you from your other channels. You're the boy with the blaze. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but that doesn't really seem appropriate on this channel about terrible crimes. Uh, this one is all about the Eerie Strangler, or Callum, today's writer, always the writer, has given me the alternate title, The Tragic Tale of Michigan's Accidental Pirates, which sounds very interesting. If you're new here, what happens is Callum will write me a script, which I have in front of me. Uh, If you're viewing this on YouTube, you will see the script, which has a big misprint in it. I see that my printer screwed something up, so hopefully that won't affect things too much today. Uh, If you're listening on podcasts as well, welcome. If you are uh, watching, I know that most of you are not subscribed. I look in the analytics and I'm like, look, I think it's like 70% of you are not subscribed to The Casual Criminalist. So get on it. Click that subscribe button. If you're listening uh, as a podcast or whatever, leave me a review. Or as I always say, if you're, watch, uh, if you're listening on Spotify, they don't have reviews or the option to subscribe. So that is all rather disappointing. Anyway, let's just crack on. Uh, Callum wrote it for me. I'm going to read it. I'm going to add some comments, blah, 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 blah. And uh, yes, that'll be all rather fun. Picture a pirate. You're probably imagining a black tricorn. Is that the weird hat the pirates wear? Callum has such an extensive vocabulary and knowledge of words. I'm like, tricorn. So a pirate hat. (laughs) Eye patch, cutlass, and a cute little parrot on the shoulder. Their harmless Halloween costume image is almost enough to make you forget that this lot were some of the most cold-blooded killers of all time. Dressing up as Blackbeard now is basically like cosplaying Saddam Hussein in a few centuries' time. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of true. And then I saw that movie, Captain Phillips, with Tom Hanks, and it's like, oh yeah, real pirates are less fun. What you should probably really be picturing is the mugshot of Joseph Kerwin, one of the last people to fall foul of the USA's anti-piracy laws. The murder and robbery ones, not the ones that stopped you copying VHS tapes from Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, stopped me. (laughs) Well done, anti-piracy laws. You solved the problem. It wasn't the markets with Spotify and Netflix that, that solved the problem. And I'm sure there is still piracy. It's been, a, it's been a long time since I allegedly, not that I ever did, <laughs> allegedly did any piracy. Although nothing like a pirate in the traditional sense, this 20th century serial killer provides a far more accurate image of the reality of crime on the high seas. His sordid biography is far from the kind of kid-friendly pirate story you're used to. I really think, like, when I think of pirates now, I do think of that Tom Hanks movie, rather than, like, Blackbeard or some sh**. But just as interesting in its own right. So, without further ado, let's dive right into the story of Joseph Kerwin, a.k.a. the Michigan Pirate, a.k.a. the Eerie Strangler. He's got more names than Puff Daddy. Robbery on the Western States The first little twist in our slightly more modern pirate story is that it didn't even take place at sea. The main events take place on Lake Erie, one of America's five great lakes, with Buffalo City on its eastern shore and Detroit on the west. On the 13th of September 1904, a ferry named the Western States was making the crossing from east to west. In a private cabin on board slept Adelia Sweeting, a wealthy woman from the town of Jackson, M.I. Michigan fingers crossed. There was one I came across the other day, I can't even remember what it was, but I had no idea what state it was for. I think it was M.E. Is there a state M.E.? Memphis? Memphis is in Tennessee. See, these things, I don't know. I'm not American. Please don't blame me. I mean, obviously I could look it up. You could blame me for not looking it up. 
but uh, that's that's about it. Under the cover of darkness, someone slipped open the door to her cabin unseen. She awoke moments later with a stranger's hands around her neck, throttling the life out of her. A panicked Adelia was only able to make out the silhouette of her attacker as he forced his weight down harder, causing the blood vessels in her eyelids to rupture. Just as she began to black out, her eyes adjust enough to vaguely make out the features of the man, the last face she'll ever see for about 10 minutes, which is roughly how long it took her to regain consciousness. Very clever, Callum. And yes, I did have to read that twice, because the first time I cut it out and I screwed it up. Miss Sweeting had survived the attack with only some bruising and a killer headache. However, several of her belongings were missing from her room and person. Three pricey gold rings and $40 in cash, which is well over a grand in today's money. And if there's a lesson there, kids, it's that inflation will destroy your money over time. Still dazed and terrified, Adelia was able to make it out of her room and onto the deck. She managed to get the attention of a crew member who took her to see the captain. Bruise marks around her neck showed the force she had been choked with, and her voice was reduced to a rough croak. Despite all of that, the man in charge initially wrote off the whole thing as a hallucination. <laughs> Clearly, this hysterical woman was high on drugs or just suffering a bout of the vapors. Eventually, the goddamn strangle marks on her neck convinced him to take the matter a bit more seriously. It's very, very negligent, isn't it? Satisfied that Adelia had in fact been attacked, he prevented anyone from leaving by anchoring the ship far from the port at Detroit. The culprit would have to be one hell of a swimmer to make a getaway from all the way out there. One of the crew was sent to retrieve a detective from the city, and the rest waited quietly for his arrival, knowing an attempted murderer was in their midst. If this hasn't been turned into a movie already, Hollywood, you've absolutely missed a trick. This is like Murder on the Orient Express, but and when's that movie set? It's got to be around, what, 100 years ago? Maybe more than 100 years? I don't know. And I know it was a book. I know it was a book. The, Simon, the, the Murder on the Orient City is a book. It's a famous book. It's like, look, I've not read it, but I have seen the movie. And no, I haven't seen the old movie. I've just seen the new one. It was okay. Capture. Detective Frank Wilkinson, Wilkinson arrived on board his own personal Agatha Christie novel. Did Agatha Christie write? <laughs> Did she write Murder on the Orient Express? Uh, in the middle of the night, and gathered what little details he could from Miss Sweeting. Uh, she only had vague memories of her assailant's appearance. There was little chance of, them catch of catching them through a simple shipwide ID parade. So he then went about interviewing everyone on board one by one. The reason this hasn't been made into a movie is it's too close to Murder on the Orient Express, right? They all did it. Oh, spoiler alert. Do we have to give spoiler alerts for books that are over 100 years old, or however old it is? His makeshift interrogation cell was the engine room, where he metaphorically cranked up the heat on his suspects. Put a pop pop the one who sweated the most was a greaser, someone who oils the machinery, that is, named Joseph Kerwin. Like everyone else on board, he denied any knowledge of what had happened, but he struggled to maintain his composure as he said so. He was fidgety and terse in his answers. Without DNA, CCTV, or anything else actually useful to, a, to an investigation, all that old-timey detectives had to go on was hunches, and Wilkinson had a pretty good hunch that he found his man. He tailed the ship worker to his family home in Detroit, and when the detectives and his colleagues raided the abode of the fidgety greaser they discovered the missing rings hidden away inside oh that is i mean with lack of any other evidence that is that is going to be a bad time for you and this was definitely during the times where they would kill you for such crimes 
The eerie strangler was arrested there and then in front of his wife and kid and carted off to jail. You're probably wondering, what does any of this have to do with Pirate Simon? Did he bury the rings in the back garden and draft up a treasure map? Did he shoot a flintlock pistol at the cops while shouting, Arr, matey! Stick with me, it'll all make sense in a moment. I get the feeling... And I don't know if this is a spoiler, because as I've said already, I read these. uh, This is my first experience with this uh, as as well. My guess would be, my guess would be that there is some specific weird wording of the law which defines piracy. So it could be like breaking and entering into a cabin and causing harm to someone and thieving while at sea. And it's all like that will fall into the legal definition of piracy or something. It's it's like burglary, I think, at least in the UK, isn't actually stealing things. Burglary is breaking into a place with the intention to steal things or do damage of, or vandalism or something. It's It's weird. It's weird. I guess I'm going to guess it's going to be something like that. It could be something entirely different, and that would prove to you that I don't read these ahead of time. No one believes I read these ahead of time. And accidentally, if I did, they'd be better, and, you know, I'd be more prepared. An accidental pirate. I told you already that the Eerie Strangler was far from the archetypal pirate. Really, he was only a pirate according to a very uh, peculiar technicality such a big brain. It's all to do with distance from shore that a crime is committed. In this case, it happened 17 miles out in the middle of the lake. Fans of maritime law may know that a country's territorial waters end 12 nautical miles from their coast according to modern legislation. This is about 13.8 normal miles or 22 kilometers. They had to make nautical miles different from regular miles, didn't they? Because miles and distance aren't complicated enough already. This used to be only three nautical miles in the olden days, judged because it was roughly the maximum range of cannons back then. Wow, you learn something new every day. Today I found out, which by the way is another channel I do on YouTube. You can look it up if you want to, but I'd rather you just continue listening to this. Thank you. Um, is it is it is it like international waters? This is on a lake, right? So surely the whole lake is like you at. Ah, but maybe it's on the Canadian border. That would make sense. Anyway, look, I'm going to stop guessing and I'm going to get on with some actual facts, like the good fact boy that I am. Past that line, wherever it lies, you're no longer within the country's territorial waters. That's where the high seas begin. Essentially, different laws apply depending on how far out you are and which part of the waters you're in. So, by a similar quirk of the 1904 legal code, the main charge against Joseph Kerwin technically qualified as the fantastically dramatic robbery on the high seas. Laws originally intended to punish murderous sea dogs for attacking merchant ships were now suddenly being applied on an inland lake only connected to the sea by a canal. For the Erie Strangler, this was very bad news. Until that point, he had only been looking at Michigan State assault and grand larceny charges. Five years behind bars was the expectation. Oh yeah, he didn't kill anyone. So I said he was, you know, he's going to be killed or whatever, but he didn't murder the, the lady. So, okay. Five years seems pretty light. That seems fair. That seems fair. He found himself becoming an accidental pirate, a group of people who the law treated much more harshly. Uh-oh. Life in prison was the maximum possible punishment under Michigan law for piracy, but this was far enough outside the bounds of their regular jurisdiction that the case was thrown up the chain to the federal courts. This proved even worse for Kevin because the standard federal penalty for piracy was death. Our strangling scallywag was well and truly screwed. Oh, you've got a lawyer out of this one, right? I mean, this is like getting caught on a technicality, but the the wrong way round. You're not going to be executed for this. Surely, surely not. 
I kind of hope not, even though this guy is obviously a bad dude. His criminal past. Oh god, maybe he's got a horrible criminal past. <laughs> he got away with murder loads of times. A noose around the neck seems like a pretty disproportionate leg up from five years in prison, so do we think that the eerie strangler was being treated unfairly? Before you decide for sure, let's take a bit of time to dive back into his past. As it turns out, he had committed a fair few stranglings before this one. The first was at the age of 14, still just a school-aged street urchin on the town in the town of Toledo, Ohio. After a few years spent confined to a reform school, he did the exact same thing in Illinois, serving four years in prison before being released to start over in Cleveland. When, in 1903, a prostitute named Maggie Snedegar was found dead in a brothel, strangled to death by an anonymous customer dubbed Joe the Strangler, our future pirate naturally ranked fairly high on the list of suspects. Investigators initially caught his scent because two more women came forward, reported being strangled and robbed in the days following the murder. Both were able to give matching descriptions of the man, and when the police eventually caught up with him, they found the murdered woman's pocket watch in his jacket. Uh-oh! See, this is why proper pirates bury their treasure. Twice in his career, the strangler could have avoided implicating himself if he had just hidden his loot. When the arrest hit the news, the police in his hometown of Toledo linked him to a cold case in which another prostitute named Anna Snyder was robbed and killed in an almost identical fashion. Frustratingly, there wasn't enough evidence to move forward with either this crime or the Maggie Snedegar murder, so Joe the Strangler ended up walking free to inflict that same violence upon others. That is unfortunate. Some have speculated, based on the nature of his crimes, in which he never really bothered to hide his face from the victims, preferring to look them in the eye as he assaulted or killed them. That is psycho, mate. Uh, there was very possibly a sexual motivation behind the crimes. His carelessness had cost him several times already, and that latest brush with the law was an extremely close call. The Strangler knew that himself, so he decided to ease up on his crimes for a while. He moved on to start a family in Detroit. He took a job on a certain ferry which ran along Erie Lake. But once a Strangler, always a Strangler. By the time we caught up with him on that fateful night out on the lake, his urges had resurfaced, and Kevin couldn't refrain from adding one more crime to his sizable tally. Life in Prison Given that his latest crime was identical to those he had been suspected of in the past and he had been caught with the victim's rings in his possession, the Erie Strangler decided it would probably be best just to plead guilty. This didn't preclude Judge Henry Swan from issuing the death penalty. There was still every chance that the Strangler would find himself hanging from a rope before the end was out. However, Swan decided that it was only fair he should be able to choose between the state and federal penalties on the table. If you remember, that meant a choice between life in prison or death. Swan decided on the former. The Strangler... <laughs> I mean, I I think, like, well, that's not a hard decision. But I do think there are people, and I think we've covered at least one person who did choose death. Maybe it wasn't on Casual Criminals. Maybe it was on another channel. But they chose to be hanged rather than accept a pardon. Um, because they, it's a pardon, a, not a pardon, a commutation, which would reduce the sentence to life in prison rather than execution, because they just didn't want to spend the rest of their lives in like 18th century prison. I mean, who can blame them? But I'd always choose, like, yeah, no, I'd rather live. <laughs> like, I, I feel that's very ingrained in our biology the the desire to live not in everyone's biology obviously um suicide is a thing but in most people's biology Swan decided on the former, and the Strangler was sent to the Detroit House of Correction, a mixed state and federal institution, to start his penultimate stint behind bars. Oh, he's getting out and he's going back in again. 
The case became a sensation in papers across the region, partly because of the bizarre piracy designation that was anachronistic even for the early 20th century. That's why the eerie strangler's life behind bars is relatively well documented. He remained a popular curiosity for decades. Cohen was hardly a model prisoner at first and gained a reputation among the jailers for violence and unpredictability. What a surprise. The guy who was violent and unpredictable goes to prison and continues to be violent and unpredictable. Who knew that a convicted pirate with a penchant for strangling prostitutes would have anger issues? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that is any, like, it's worth documenting at all. He was violent. No sh. But perhaps it was just his environment that he was acting out against, because seven years into his sentence, he was transferred to a medium security prison, USP Leavenworth, uh, in Kansas. Prison psychologists there diagnosed him with constitutional psychopathic inferiority and noted evidence of frank psychosis. I don't know what frank psychosis is, but it sounds bad. But despite all that, Long John Strangler blossomed into the model prisoner, prison citizen. He became the conductor of the prison band, mastered the trombone, starred in musicals, became their number one athlete, ran the prison newspaper, studied engineering, and even went above and beyond to help, out, help put out a fire that broke out there a few years into his bid. Yeah, I mean, if I was this dude, and you got to go to prison for like a long, long time, I'd just be like, embrace it. Like, you don't i mean don't become like horribly violent and stuff like learn to engineering this is way better this is way better what a guy probably the most upstanding prostitute murderer i've ever had the good fortune of knowing that's what some who knew him thought anyway believing the strangler to be well and truly reformed his associates campaigned to have him pardoned by president woodrow wilson then president warren g harding both of the appeals were denied Kerwin would serve a full 22 years behind bars before finally tasting freedom again when he was paroled in 1926 that is a long stretch the papers wrote once again about the refined and reformed pirate, boosting him to minor celebrity status once again. So, did our hero go on to become Michigan's number one band-leading, poem-writing, tech-savvy leading man? No, Callum, I know, because you said penultimate stint behind bars. So, second to last. Well, no, actually, he was caught in the act during another burglary and sent back to Leavenworth, where he died in 1943. Ho, 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 a pirate's life for all. <laughs> And that just about wraps up the story of the one and only inland pirate in American history. It's for sure among the more unusual legal cases which the country has ever produced. Due to one little legislative quirk, Joseph Kerwin was able to swagger into prison as a modern-day blackbeard rather than the common killer that he was. His case remains the only piracy conviction on America's Great Lakes, although that could be a fun summer project for anyone with a kayak and a shotgun. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do... Again, here at Casual Criminalist, we don't recommend doing crimes, okay? Just remember that as long as you get really, really good at the trombone, the public will apparently forgive you for your sins and campaign to have you pardoned. Yeah, that is a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Was it perhaps all the hype and fanfare around the piracy designation which made this possible for Joseph Kerwin? It's certainly true that it adds a bit of a quirky veneer to distract from an otherwise awful story. Essentially, this accidental pirate was little more than a common crook who got a kick out of strangling women, often to death, and funded his lifestyle by stealing their possessions. I hope all you Disney executives out there have been taking notes for Pirates of the Caribbean 17. The curse of the sexually deviant serial killer will take our royalties in check. Thank you. Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. I think I saw the first Pirates of the Caribbean and I didn't see any of the others. But I was looking them up the other day. Oh, I think we made a video or something. And I was like, I found out that one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, like Pirates of the Caribbean 4 or whatever, is one of the most expensive movies ever made. And I'm like, people actually saw this? And then you look at the box office take and it's like, wow. Yeah, people really go to see Pirates of the Caribbean, like, 19, with Johnny Depp, who's 
become progressively more weird as his career's gone on. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. One thing which hasn't changed in the hundred-odd years since the days of the Eerie Strangler is that Americans sure do love a good lawsuit. While the Strangler's court date was approaching, Ad Adelia Sweeting sued the ferry company over her treatment, alleging that the captain dismissed her as a drug addict and a cabin boy ignored her pleas for help. She initially pursued them for $25,000 but ended up winning $12,000, which, how much is $364,000 in today's money, good lord. Number two, despite his bad fortune in committing his crime way out on the waters of the lake, it could have been much worse for Kevin. Had he strangled his victim closer to the departure port of Buffalo, the judge would have had to choose between the federal penalty and the New York state penalty. That would have been a coin toss between death and death. Well, wasn't he a lucky chappy only getting 22 years in prison? This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope you enjoyed it. As always, as I say, if you're watching this on YouTube, you have a like button to smash and a subscribe button to gently click on if you're listening as a podcast. Remember, also subscribe, leave me a review if you can. That would be grand. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for watching.